0: Bobby catcher on the show of Bobby catcher selections. Hello, sir. How are you?
1: I'm well. Thank nice you. To see you.
0: Thanks. So you grew up in the Florida Everglades.
1: <laughs> well, I grew up in Southwest Miami, which was the gateway, I think, to the Everglades. And uh, at that time, it looked like the Everglades. It was a long time ago.
0: And then you ended up moving to D.C. for.
1: I came to D.C. I was uh, 20 years old, and my ambition was to go to school, and never quite made the college. Uh, dream, but uh, ended up in Europe after a certain amount of time in the wine business and just remained there.
0: Because you were working at a wine store?
1: I started in retail at 21 years old. Yeah. And what was that like? It was great. Um, I didn't know anything about wine at 21, and largely the American consumer didn't either. So we sort of educated ourselves and it was pretty ambitious, I guess, and uh, enthusiastic. So I was hired by a bigger wine store, a second wine store, and I stayed there for, well, from 74 to 79 and had a chance to really explore and discover and learn and, and grow.
0: So you dug retail?
1: I really like it. The consumer's the best.
0: People sort of said, hey, Bobby, why don't you go on this trip with me to Europe?
1: I went actually uh, just, when I turned, just after I turned 21. I went to Portugal first. I went with a friend who was in the trade, and he saw that I was very keen on exploring the origin of production, and said, "I'm going to Portugal. I'm in the trade. I can get you this trip." And he and I went together, and we uh, stayed for you know about three weeks, and I actually attended a school called the Instituto de Vinho Porto. Oh, okay. In the Douro. Three weeks—a long time. I mean. Yeah, two weeks. We we explored uh, uh, from Lisbon North and the various regions, and. I'm a sort of a geography buff so I, you know when you want to learn geography you realize how that dovetails with wine and finding the places that grow what and what kind of wines are made in certain regions and uh, that uh, we ended up anyway in Porto where he was enrolled in at the instituto de Vino Porto to study fortified wines and I was his guest and so we spent a week there and learned quite a lot about production of fortified wine port for the most part
0: but eventually you sort of steered more into the direction of france
1: well yeah um when i went to work at continental liquors in washington and you looked at the wine trade in washington dc which was you know the northeast and it looked like europe compared to to florida and uh more you know, that international very very international and also that that generation at that time in the early 70s largely drank European wine. And um, because of our invo- involvement and in our close relationship with France, I suppose because World War I and World War II and all these uh, veterans, etc. my family, in fact, some of them, my uncles were in France. Um, but also
0: like a strong dollar to the, to the franc, I think.
1: It was, time. but I, there was a huge Bordeaux following for people that had been to France and Burgundy less so. And when you looked at a wine shop back in the 70s in markets like New York even and Boston, Chicago, uh, Washington, you saw certainly more European wine. Not just French wine, but more European wine than you saw American wine or New World wine.
0: So you get over to France and what's your first introduction?
1: I um, had the opportunity while I was at Continental to take a trip each year and they were pretty lenient. They were wonderful people. They allowed me to explore and grow the store because that was my ambition. And it's a typical trip. You arrive in Paris and you descend due south. And, um, you know, when you do that, you can sort of capture Sancerre. You capture Chablis, which is next door, down to Burgundy. And then if you continue uh, south of Lyon, you're in the Rhone Valley. So uh, that was a typical wine route, Sometimes I wonder whether those regions became discovered because there was always a train that took you straight down that route, which made it really, really quite simple. Alsace, you had to go, you know, to the east. Champagne, of course, you had to go to the northeast. But that was my first. I was down in the Southern Rhone Valley. In fact, I trained down to Avignon and discovered the Southern Rhone Valley a little bit and saw the gateway to Grenache, if you want, and had that that first ex- exploration.
0: Because you had a house in Gigandoff for a few years. Well, that
1: was later. That was much later. So I stayed at Continental Liquors until 1979, mid-79. And I joined a a really good guy uh, who had a wine importing company in Philadelphia. He saw my keen interest in learning. I was learning French quite quickly because of my trips each year. And uh, he needed to expand that part of his portfolio. And he was already well-developed in Portugal. And, um, he was also impressed that I had once been to Portugal before France. Not many many people uh, at that point had ever thought about Portugal as a place to go before you go to, you know, Italy, France, Spain. So, um, I joined Leo, Leo Fox.
0: Oh, I know Leo. Yeah. He was old school and awesome.
1: Oh, he's a good guy. In this way. Yeah. 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 Worldwide shippers. Yeah. World shippers and importers in Philadelphia. So I joined him and, uh, he gave me the liberty to be in France two to three months a year, which really began, um, you know, in the, let's say 1980. And I had a chance to make all my mistakes, buy wine for the company, grow a group of people that could sell it throughout the United States. So I was back and forth all the time. And uh, it was very exciting. And uh, I did that until the end of 1984, when I decided I'd put my, my name on a bottle of wine.
0: What were the first wines you started bringing in in 79 and the early 80s?
1: A domain in Beaune, a very old domain in Beaune called Moreau. the brother, Jamais brothers in Côte uh the Sancerre produced by the Thomas family in Verdigny.
0: So some of the same ones you have today.
1: Yes, yes.
0: What was it like going to Jamais
1: for the first time? Primitive, I'd say. Uh, Jean-Luc and Jean-Paul were quite young, as I was, in my, somewhere in my 20s, and um, Dad was there at that time, Joseph, and they did much more than just grow Syrah on the plateau. They um, grew wheat and they had some fruit trees and, you know, we're talking a long time ago. So wines are very traditional and they remain quite traditional. But um, if you define Jamais was, you know, simply a very French wine broker who lived in Tannermitage, um, who was a friend of a friend of mine, Peter Hallgarten from from London, he was a great wine merchant, and uh, I would meet Peter in the Rhone Valley. He had he would largely, in a positive way, push me to do my own thing because he saw something in me, motivation, talent, maybe whatever he saw, and um, he would meet me in the Rhone because he would be buying wine for the British market, and I would be buying wine for the American market. And so we shared growers and we shared people. And he had this guy by the name of Ligier, Mr. Ligier, who's now quite dead. I mean, he has, would be 100 now, I guess. He said, hey, there's this these two brothers up on the plateau of uh and you should go see them. The wines are very traditional, but, you know, they they make good wine, honest mm-hmm. wine. And so we went up and, you know, if you go to Homme today, you can find any grower you want to find with a little sign, they're all marked very clearly how to get there and where to go. But Jamie, you know, you have to climb six, eight kilometers, the back hills of uh, Cotorti to, to get to the Jamie house. And it was a one little hut on the edge of the hill. And there were maybe three fooders, 600 liter, maybe demi-muisas, 600 liter barrels that were, had to be 25 years old. And we taste out of those. And they vinified a couple of hundred yards back. In the garage, and the wines descended down the hill by a hose, and they filled their, their casks, and we tasted. And the first vintage I bought was 1979. Very much uh, remember that. And it's sometimes when I go there and I reminisce with those guys, uh, we can hardly believe that we're, you know, all that time has passed. And, and uh, I guess I'm a few years older. I'm almost 63. And I think maybe Jean Paul now must be in his late 50s. So he was quite young when we first met.
0: All their vineyards are in the cote Uh, No,
1: not, not entirely anymore, but it was much favored by Brune, uh, largely. I mean, when I got there, they had about three, two and three-quarter hectares or that, and it's grown. I mean, they're over 10 hectares, and uh, but I would say 80% of their vineyards are in Brune. in fact, yeah.
0: And then you actually ended up doing harvest with them a number of years.
1: I would arrive at harvest time. I didn't actually harvest with them, um, my objective was to see, harvest, and participate in seeing how the fruit was processed. I'm, as time went by, and I was able to, you know, my business was quite small, and I had a lot of years to be able to devote without needing a lot of employees because I wasn't didn't have a family. Uh, my son was born when I was forty three, almost forty three, so I could spend four to six months a year in France without you know, any problem and devoting that much time, you can do a lot more than just be a wine importer doing their typical one month trip or a two week trip or whatever wine importers do today. I would spend four to six months and that's how I ended up in the department of Gigondas. going to us. And I wanted to integrate myself into production as much as I could because that I wanted to know why wines tasted like uh, they tasted. Uh, I didn't want to buy just the tall tale of generalization that I would hear from most people about things I knew it had a lot to do with the individual grower farmer how it was farmed the two stages farming and winemaking they're two quite different processes the uh, only way you could learn that was to to be surplus to be there during those critical times and so that's what I did
0: and you started to develop a, a flair for making your own cuvées.
1: well i guess that goes along with having 4 to 6 months being in france i had my year was generally a couple of months, three times a year, or a month and a half, three times a year. It started in November. I knew it was critical to be there uh, right after harvest when all the lots were separated. So things were not yet blended together. They were just finishing fermentation. And largely growers, when they move wine, they unify them. And uh, I wanted to get there before that because a given harvest could take place over three weeks and different parcels are harvested over that three-week period. And it was the difference between the lots and the harvest dates uh, were quite, quite significant. And I could see that there was raw material I liked better than others. And if I was able to isolate that parcel or that lot or that cuve, I would sort of mark it as my reservation, come back again in January and spend another month and a half, which would show you the end of uh, alcoholic fermentation, finished, pre-mallow normally, uh, which was key. Again, if I was undecided in November, because it was quite early, uh, I could then reevaluate and see what I saw in January. And I would come back again and stay early May to the middle of June at least. And then you were either in malolactic fermentation, some cases finished. You had a chance to really put together your own assemblage. And as I uh, was driven by raw material, I became more and more passionate to sort out what were the best lots from each individual estate. And the the growers were on the same page. I mean, they were they found me very curious, actually, that I was willing to do that kind of work to end up with a bottling that I thought was what I wanted to put my name on.
0: I mean, because that's coming back to taste
1: quite a bit. That's a lot. I was working very, very hard.
0: And probably not with just Jamme, but with
1: no, I Remember. No. I think uh, No. Jame um, there was so little wine made. Generally speaking, he only made one Kivé. So, jamais uh, gets talked about a lot because they sort of became a cult producer. But Jamais made such a little wine that you either, you know, I bought their wine every year. And I celebrate the differences in the vintages, whether they become the fashionable or popular years or famous years. Uh, I sort of enjoyed, as I grew closer to the French, I, my perspective is more French. How so? You live with them, all that all that time, I had, we had more, probably more friends at that time in France than I did in America. I had a very small apartment in Washington, DC. Um, that was just very simple. And I was in and out of it because when I wasn't in France, I had to travel around the country. because so I sold my one in Texas and California and Seattle and Portland and New York and Boston and I, the key cities. So I'd come home and rest a little bit and, um, get all my paperwork together and, really interesting trying to decipher all my notes to see exactly what cuvées uh, I'd put together. And sometimes I'd carry back wine or have it shipped to follow and then go on the road. So I wasn't home a lot in DC. And when I got to France, I just felt like these people really appreciated it because back then they weren't known. And, uh, America had really no particular palate for wine. We just drank what we were told to drink and, and, you know, a sort of vanilla chocolate and strawberry. And I was part of, found myself in a situation where I was actually part of shaping what, you know, what became popular and what became considered authentic. And that was that drive for authenticity that really drove me, I suppose.
0: What was that feeling like?
1: Very exciting. Um, It is today still. I came from a very modest family and uh, upbringing and being able to create something that people enjoyed, discussed also critiqued um and being in the midst of a generation in fact it was my generation the generation of that importer that really had uh the opportunity to make a change because we were the baby boomers and there were baby boomers in france too so their vinification was evolving they were more educated and we were all moving together i think
0: do you see certain characteristics of that generation of importers when you look around your peers do you see oh this is kind of what we shared
1: i think so yeah i i it's hard to sit here and tell you what i think of the other importers and what they did and what i did i know that i was there most of the time and um i had an opportunity i had an advantage from that standpoint because i had the freedom to do that and i had the desire to do that and um I think if I probably didn't have a great kid by the name of Alex Catcher, um, I'd probably be there today. But he was an American kid, and I gravitated to be home a little bit more because I, being a dad, was super important. And uh, but uh, France became you know in Gigondas in the Drome when I was in the Cote Bonne, I kept the same house for a number of years. Uh, I rented. I didn't own that one uh, on top of uh, Saint Auban or Saint Roman, excuse me. And um, I think my I. Maybe I just felt my perspective was different and my work was different. But whatever it took to motivate you to do something better, I wanted to put stuff in the bottle that people hadn't seen. I, that was my drive.
0: An early influence was Jean-Claude Vernet.
1: Well, he was just, he was part of, um, you know, he was a famous restaurateur. You know, Thai volunteer is very famous. And I it was fascinated because I usually did not gravitate to, to restaurants where the owner wasn't a chef. You know, that wasn't artisanal enough for me. But, you know, he was a very bright guy. And uh, he organized his cuisine and made sure it was good. And he found people to execute it in the kitchen. But several times I was in small wineries, obscure wineries. I mean, not corporate wineries, you know, tiny growers, fine growers. And Rina would appear. I mean, he would hang out at Jailles-Gilles. And I was a very close friend of Robert Chayet. And I would sit around the table you know, I mean, in the evening, and we'd talk with Renan. He asked Robert for his advice on certain things. He'd actually bring wine at times for us to taste, that he had, for, for Robert to taste, um, to, to get his perspective. I had a very close relationship with him. If I had a French father, it would have been Robert J. Painful as he was as a father. He was uh, uh, a person that taught me a lot of things, and I respected so Jean-Claude, when was there, and I remember one time I was in Pomar, uh, the Enchance de Pomar was giving out little certificates, and only 20 people there, you know, and uh, I was receiving one. I think it was in late January, and uh, Jean-Claude was there, and I, I could see that this was a person. This is why I admired him because of all the limelight he shared in Paris as being a great restaurateur. At the same time, he was very, very close to the farmer. He was very close to the vigneron. And, you know, in my own little mind, I thought I was a little bit the same. I'd come back to America and go to the great restaurants to show my wine. But when I went back to France, I was with the real, real growers. I, and uh, he would, he had the same approach. He wasn't a corporate wine guy. And a lot of the big restaurants and people in the wine business, even in our country here, you know, they, they do their business with, Certain types of people, and uh, the type of people I did business with, were on tractors at six o'clock in the morning, and made wine by hand, and that that drove me. So,
0: and what about Robert Jaillet? What was he like as a person?
1: Very tough Burgundian uh, from the, the Jaillet family. If you know anything about them, uh, you know they're they vigneron's, they're farmers, and their family history is deep and long in Nuit Saint Georges and Von Romanée. Where Henri already lived, but uh, Robert was born in New Saint George, and um, but his mother was born in in Vaudreuil, and I used to visit her with him. He would stop by. We never went in the house. We'd open up the window on the street, and he'd yell into her to talk to her, and she'd come to the window, and I would be standing at the window on the street, having a chat. He'd get his five minutes to see his mom, and then we'd go on and do something else. But he was interested in me because he'd probably not met an American uh, ever to begin with, but ever like me and i was willing to go anywhere to taste a barrel of wine that he thought i should taste and always curious about seeing the different styles i realized that you know we taste six guys that make uh boudou and Saint Georges, and there were six different wines so we knew that there was more than microclimate involved here that there were decisions that were made by the person that farmed it and the way they farmed it and the way they made it and their their behavior which influenced the quality of the wine and Robert and I did a lot of that because, uh, we were interested and he, uh, was from that neighborhood. So it gave me that opportunity to taste at Romani Conti when I wanted to, because he, he worked at Romani Conti uh, himself when he was quite young and, uh, uh, in a ver- variety of other great Von Romani and louis saint George domains. So he was uh, an incredible guy, very tough, very hard, very hard. And his son, Gilles, um, they had a hard time together and it was, uh, I was in the midst of that, and it was a struggle for all of us, and I didn't approve of how he fathered and promised myself never to be like that. Uh, but as his as, uh, wine goes, he was a, an incredible individual.
0: And you worked with Claude Dugat and Jevre?
1: Yes. What was that like? Claude uh, is a very, very kind, quiet individual, entirely different from Robert Jailly. Um It started in 89, I think when I bought one barrel of Givry Village. And uh, after I bought that barrel of wine, I I went there with Robert. And I think I went there with Jean-Marc Joblo from Givry, who's was one of the great winemakers, in my mind, in Burgundy, regardless of appellation. And we looked at the beauty of the wines, at Claude's Wines, and saw that. And, and we'd scratch our heads saying, why aren't, why aren't you moving this forward? Because you have all these great vineyards. or But the way he farmed was very... He was at peace in the vineyard, and Claude didn't rush anything. And I sent him in a couple of new barrels from Jean-Francois. I remember buying a couple of new barrels as a gift for the end of the year. Francois Frere. Francois Frere. And and I sent them because I used to buy 40 or 50 barrels a year from Francois, new, for some growers that did not have cleaner, uh, let's just say cleaner elevage and malolactics. I wanted to be clean. I didn't like old filthy barrels, and I was pretty terrified of high volatiles and all those things. And, um, and he accepted them, and, and he couldn't believe that I'd sent them those. I guess you know, they're expensive and whatever. Of course, I didn't have any employees, so everything I, I made, I could reinvest in, in wine. And I sent them those, and uh, we started to work that way. And the next year, he refused my barrels at the door, and he replaced them with 25 new ones of his own because he could see what his wines tasted like being done in cleaner barrels in a better ambiance, let's say, than the older barrels that didn't exchange oxygen, didn't do what new ones do. So uh, Claude moved forward, and he works very well, and he works very carefully, and he works with, uh, well, he has three children. Two of them are very involved in the wine. Bertrand right now is probably in charge because Claude is always looking to pass it off to the kids and is not interested in the limelight. He's very shy and uh, very kind. And Marie Therese is the same way, and they're beautiful people, and they're great friends.
0: And what about Jobel and Givray?
1: Well, Jean-Marc, is. Uh, if you've ever met him or had the chance to meet him, and if you want to learn about Pinot Noir and in two hours, and sit down and measure yield per per plant rather than yield per hectare, crop load per plant, the way to handle fruit, Uh, the science. He's a PhD analog from Dijon, so he knows what Pinot Noir looks like under a microscope rather than sort of guesstimating what's going to happen. He knows essentially what's going to happen. And because he's in Givry, I guess there's a certain... um, underdog position because you're in the Côte de Chalonnais and you're not in the Côte de Nuit or Côte d'Or in general. And um, he worked very hard and he worked very serious and he works with his brother Vincent. And uh, they are probably the legendary folks from the Côte de Chalonnais. There were other guys today that followed Jean-Marc that actually Jean-Marc helped his neighbors elevate the quality of their wine and explained what they needed to do to make better wine and that the possibilities were there. The problem was is that you have to be willing to Reduce your production quite a lot. Harvest very carefully, everything by hand, of course. And uh, triage like crazy. And do the things you do to make great wine, but then, of course, you have to be compensated for it. So the price of his givry was always 40 or 50% more expensive than everybody else's. But when the wine is tasted, uh, the appellation was forgotten. So.
0: Is there a tannic signature that those wines share? Dugat, Joe Blow was there a certain mouthfeel
1: i suppose i mean they're all pinot noir let's we're in burgundy in the general sense and we have pinot noir grown uh to be as i suppose as uh, fresh freshness was a a signature of i think the pinots that we have we like a, we like weight of course we like a certain middle flavor but um we always really focused on preserving co2 during our fermentation fermenting cooler. Uh, we don't like to, we'd like, if we, when, when we do the pre-maceration, cold soak, it should be a cold soak and not a sulfur soak. Not,
0: not a sulfur soak.
1: Yeah. And so in, you're
0: using more CO2, so you use less sulfur. But you have to
1: have cold. And the Burgundians, uh, in general, if there's something over the last 35 years that the French didn't have, uh, when it came to technology in the winery, it was refrigeration. And if it was cool outside and you opened up the doors, you got a cold soak that was Cold. It was hot. He had a lot of SO two. Uh, that was that was a That was, a that was Guy Akkad's, you know, recipe. And his recipe taught us a lot, and we all learned from that. And that was what was very cool about being there. As much as I was there, my ear to, was to the ground, and I was part of the, the group that sort of, you know, decided which direction to go. And and Jean Marc had his own his own philosophy within the same philosophy. Then you start, I mean, the details that it takes to take it from great farming into the winery and do all the steps that are necessary to produce fine wine. Uh, it's um, There's 10 or 15 different things that are are super key. And sometimes they're missed because there is no refrigeration. Some people pump like crazy because they don't have. Uh, the way these wineries were constructed 100 years ago or 200 years ago, there was absolutely no way to move the wine without either laboriously carrying the barrels around or pumping. And uh, so trying to get all these things refined and worked out was a was, uh, generation's worth of work.
0: How do you think those guillacot influences are manifest today?
1: Well, I think guillacot established that pre-fermentation. It first really happened, pre-fermentation for Pinot Noir uh, was an effective way to extract polyphenol's color from the fruit and preserve it. What we learned from that was that fermenting hot wasn't good. So the only way you could prohibit fermentation to take place was to arrest it. So you ferment slowly. So when it starts, it starts slowly, and you could ferment a long time at a cool temperature, not burn aromatics, not just burn out all that you wanted to preserve and freshness of fruit. And Akkad did it largely with sulfur, but when there was cold, he used that too, so he used less sulfur. So there wasn't one school but uh, what, we, what we also learned was when a farmer was harvesting a Burgundy harvest over a period of seven or eight or 10 days, when you have six, seven, eight hectares, which is not big, it still takes you a week or so to, to pick it. What do you do when you've already harvested one or two days and you have to leave to go do the rest of the harvest? Well, you didn't want your wine fermenting away or out of control in the winery when, and if you didn't have an assistant winemaker, that was not unheard of, it was usually your wife or uh, or somebody else who was paying attention to it, it was a way of keeping the juice from fermenting. And Orange Jai said that's that's how he first discovered that he, he made did sure cold with soap. his cold and SO two combined that he knew the wines weren't going to ferment. And if they started, it wasn't going to be aggressive fermentation. And what we, the result of that four to six day, whatever the number of days, cold soak, we realized that the extraction was very purple. And am very saturated relative to the vintage, of course. And at the same time, what I learned from that was if you did that effectively and gently and properly, that when the fermentation started, you didn't have to macerate like crazy, pijage, what we call it, every day, to extract, over-extract, in other so, words. So the extraction pu- was already done.
0: Push it down. You not yeah. have to I push mean, you down wanna,
1: a You want to wet the cap and you, wanna, you have to keep that saturated, of course, and, and wet. But you didn't have to overextract and... As time went by, uh, the, you asked a question, and uh, see if I can get to the answer. The Akkadian thing still lives in the sense that, that pre-maceration for Pinot Noir is a very popular technique today, and I, I like it. It protects aromas and does a lot of cool things. But um, I didn't like the fact that SO2 was killing off microorganisms that were coming from the vineyard, and that whole concept of microclimate terroir, whatever you want to call it, uh, couldn't, couldn't really exist if you were killing the microorganisms that were developing on the floor of the grape, which are really the living matter in the soil, if you have living soil, that is, uh, and the more you sulfur, the higher dose of sulfur you use, even though this, the SO2 comes, I mean, the, the yeast come back, they regenerate, but you're always eliminating some, and you're doing a selection of yeast by doing that. And you might be neutering or eliminating half of those possible characteristics as you can get from your vineyard. So we a lot less sulfur at the fermenter is practical, but you have to replace it with, with refrigeration. Refrigeration. Has to and cool. anybody that's been to Paris and has ordered a soft drink in Paris and you ask them for ice in it, they give you one ice cube. So you know uh the French don't have a lot of ice. They're not a big thing. So getting these wineries to 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 buy different size tanks that correspond to the sites we wanted to vinify independently. And to get the refrigeration for that little tank and every tank along the way uh, was an investment and a change of mentality. And the generation before mine, they weren't big on spending money. We just made do. And uh, when their parents were no longer in the picture, you saw a lot of refinancing of the estates to make better wine. the New World pushed that, too, because they were making better wine with plenty of money. And Europe had to catch up. It wasn't just France.
0: What about Stem's?
1: stems are important stems give you an indication as the fruit is hanging on the vine of how it's ripening and what's ripening first the berries or the stems and that can change usually the stems are after the fruit and you can certainly get as you see them become, go from green to golden uh, you can see the evolution if you're going to talk about burgundy i always believe that a certain amount of whole cluster per fermenter was prudent and i was taught that by robert jay that 10 or 15% of the first part harvested of the really ripe stems should go on the bottom of the tank. So when the fermentation was done uh, and the cap fell, when you allowed the juice to be racked out, it created a mesh at the bottom of the tank and it was a perfect way without having to clarify unnaturally uh, the juice that was running through. So that was one reason. Second reason for whole cluster is that it ferments from the interior and it fills up it usually ferments afterwards. It's the latest because the fruit explodes when it ferments rather than being broken and it ferments right away. So, in a tank of Pinot Noir, you will get the first fermentation from the stuff that's usually destemmed and the juice is liberated. And if you do punch down a couple of times, that really begins to ferment. And the stuff at the bottom is always going to go last. So, you actually have two infusions the first one part that ferments. Two infusions of carbon dioxide and two actual alcoholic fermentations, one at the beginning and one at the tail end. And it's sort of fascinating.
0: You also did work with white producers like Henri Boyeau. Yeah. What was he like? What is he like?
1: Clearly a Burgundian and uh, very demanding of himself and his family to make better wine. Uh, Henri uh, was both a Sose and a Boyeau. His mother was a Sose, so... They came from uh, a wealth of vineyards and they had opportunities that others didn't have because they had some of the greatest sites in all of Burgundy. Henri was a, a person that um, knew how to make great wine. And he, I, essentially, he learned from doing it. And, uh, and he's passing that on to Guillaume, his son. But Henri Boyot was the first white Burgundy maker I ever met that had a must chiller for every site. So Henri Boyot's wines didn't suffer from oxidation. Henri Boyeux, when he pressed, he would bring his fruit in in his little harvesting baskets, cases, stack them in the winery, and leave them because he had the whole shea refrigerated to 55 degrees. So if it was 90 degrees or 80 degrees outside, he cooled the fruit before it was even processed. That was number one. Number two, he'd press whole cluster, stems intact, and the, the, the juice, the must, was very cool. And he would transfer it to a tank that was refrigerated. So Henri Boyot's wines were impeccably fresh. And wh- what you'd find in Burgundy, and I think this has something to do with the uh, premature oxidation problem that we had, was a lot of people didn't have musk chillers. They were pressing juice, and the fruit was 75 degrees. It was fermenting before it, it wanted to, should have been fermented, and it was never cooled down properly to get that slow start I was talking about earlier to preserve freshness and aromas. But Henri Boyot invested in every step and every detail uh, from winemaking, spending a couple of weeks with and I did many times, allowed me to take what I learned to other places because you could see it in the raw material of his wines. His wines would go into cast so cold and so fresh that sometimes they didn't, when they went into barrel, two two days or three days after they were processed, they wouldn't ferment for a week because they were so cool and so impeccably fresh and there was never any oxidation of the must. And I think in a lot of premature oxidation that we suffered from uh, in the 80s and before that uh, was due to the fact that we had some premature oxidation of the grape juice before it was even wine. So it was already oxidized before it was even fermented, in part.
0: Because, I mean, some of the guys who are arguing against ways to deal with premature oxidation say the opposite, that it, if you oxidize the must, then you get a longer-lived wine later. But you feel that you, if you keep it clean. And-
1: well, I mean, oxygen... Aerating must is okay, but what temperature you're aerating it, and uh, what are you fixing? Are you fixing oxidatives in it? But basically speaking, I would disagree with that. Yeah, you know, I would. I would let it do its thing very slowly. What we, I guess, in general, if you've heard these expressions, terminology, we work in a very reductive format rather than an oxidative format, because if we're working in a reductive format We're we're doing it not with the absence of oxygen, but with a minimal amount of it. So sometimes when the wines go to bottle, they have a slightly reduced quality and they might be a little bit closed and maybe they don't perform as well in tastings early, but you know, you have to get over that because what I really desire to deliver you or the consumer is a wine that when you taste it in four, five, six, seven, eight years, It's a wine that's expanding, then beginning its oxidative process. I certainly don't want that oxidative process prior to bottling. At a certain level, yes. But enough so it's not funky from fermentation. But um, we work mostly in a reductive environment. And that's, in a sense, sort of modern uh, enology, if you want.
0: But, I mean, you also work with Solos, and he took a little different.
1: Well, I worked with Solos in the early 80s. And... uh, Anselm was, uh, you know, still working on it himself. I mean, he, you know, first thing, when you're fermenting in Champagne, you're fermenting, it's always cold in Champagne, you're in the north. So you had that advantage. You always have wines with a pH that is so low, an acid that's so high, It's difficult to oxidize the raw material. I mean, you're, you're dealing with underripe fruit. If you study Champagne making, you know automatically there are two fermentations that we do. One's for the wine to make and then fermentation in the bottle And you get a degree and a half of alcohol to two degrees on fermentation in the bottle during that process, surly in the bottle. So if you have much more than uh, 11 and a half as wine, you're going to end up with around 13 or more in the bottle. So it works very well in champagne because it's very hard to get the fruit ripe. And um, so you have to farm, I believe, in ripe fruit. So I believe that you should farm, you should, the risk is having too much alcohol, but Anselm uh, he was, uh, again, he was sort of like he and Jean-Michel Dice had a lot of similarities. They, um, uh, we call it coup de pat in French. It's a touch of the hands, the, the touch, the feeling that you have and that skill that comes from feeling intuition. And you do things, uh, you don't always know why, but you know, it's going to create something more interesting. And I think, um, Sometimes you end up with extraordinary wine, and sometimes it was quite oxidized. And uh, he wanted to vinify in a fine barrel. He wanted to make, what he wanted to do was make great white burgundy because he was growing mostly Chardonnay. He wanted to make something that resembled white burgundy before he fermented in the bottle. So it depends on how much evolution he had, in fact, during that process to what he finished with in the bottle. But when the wines were fabulous, they are indeed fabulous. And I think today you find much more tension, much more freshness, much more reserve in his wine than you did in the days when I started. I was with him for fifteen years, and it was the last five years when he started to really uh, get it right. And he was a um, sort of saw what Krug and the best of the champagne makers did, and and building old soleras of wine, five, six, seven vintages. You have to keep those fresh, and then ferment them in the bottle before you uh, build a champagne. And it's a interesting business, uh, an interesting business, an interesting artisanal way to work. I work with a guy today, Pascal Doquet, who I met through Ensemble Solos. And Doquet took from what Solos did, and it's always great. You know, you take from the previous, not necessarily the previous generation, but you, you learn from others' mistakes. As, you know, I've made a lot, and uh, I learned from those, hopefully, and moved forward. And, and I think uh, Solos showed us a lot of what worked and some things that didn't work. And uh, Doquet is uh, also in Blanc de Blanc, mostly, and, and you, I think uh, you've tasted a champagne, so I, I can let that speak for itself. But very Solos like and very complex.
0: So you met Solos when you were both in your 30s. What were you guys like at that time?
1: Young, uh, better looking, um, <laughs> probably healthier. We were um, adventurous. I say that what, what you see in terms of characteristics of people that are willing to go for it in the wine business um, always seem to have something to prove. We have to work a little bit harder and uh, to show the world that we deserve some respect, you know. And I think uh, Anselm was always worked, he was a small guy in Champagne with very, even though it ends up being very valuable vineyards today, uh, when he was surrounded by big, big houses with hundreds of acres of property, when you have four or five or six, it's not very much. And I think Anselm and I both shared that let's go for it, we'll do. When you have small quantities, you can do things with the wine that you can't when you have large quantities. So the whole garagist mentality really started then. You know, that whole thing that was labeled garagist, made in the garage, small quantities, that happened to Bordeaux because the Bordelais don't have garagist quantities. And to use garagist technique took a lot of work. And that it was very simple. They adapted a Burgundian technique. They started to ferment in barrel, malolactic, rather than doing it in tank. But we were fermenting alcoholic for white wines, all in barrel, in Champagne. That was already pretty revolutionary. And uh, I've, we followed those. Uh, I mean, I traveled with Anselm. He would go to Sancerre because he loved what I was doing there or my grower was doing there. He, we shared oysters and always the first week of January at JIA's. And, uh, and we all learned from each other. And we'd see something that just clicked. Said, wow, that's that's what opened that one up or that's what happened. And I get it now, you know, and that's what was is so fascinating about, about fine wine.
0: So speaking about the garages, you had an engagement with Robert Parker in terms of you guys are both in the DC area and it seemed like you get along pretty well. What's it been like?
1: Well, I don't think we had an engagement, but um, he lived in Moncton, Maryland, you know, pretty far sort of northwest in, in Maryland about Baltimore. And I was in D.C. And um, he would be found in D.C. wine shops in the very, very, very beginning when it was the Baltimore-Washington Wine Advocate tasting wine in different shops. He was uh, a tremendous worker and wanted to know why and believed uh, in his own palate. And uh, I got to know him. And although we could always disagree, we both loved the wine. And we always knew that. And I always admired some of the things people criticized or were jealous of because of his success, uh you know what he did for our generation in terms of journalism here we are uh wine journalism today. he did some amazing stuff and and i I respect him for that we were never we were close, but we weren't really that close. I mean we were close because we could talk wine, wine broke down all walls. But I didn't see him very often. I'd see him in France maybe once a year or twice. And uh, in America, not very often, actually. How do you think
0: the role of the importer has changed or not changed since the baby boomer generation? What's it like to be an importer today compared to, say, 79?
1: The taste of the public was unevolved. The influence of um, the people that write about one and all these other, you know, all that stuff was pretty virgin. There were no guides. We could come home with our wine, and I used to pet pedal it on the street, you know, wine shop by wine shop, whether whatever city I was in. And uh, it was pretty uh, open at that point. And today, uh, there are more importers, of course, than ever. Everybody wants to have a grower's portfolio, and everybody has the unfiltered, biodynamic wines and all that stuff. The spin is is all pretty well established, Uh, and largely it could be spin. I think we forget about tasting wine very often and decide whether we like it or not, or we find it interesting or individual. And uh, I think uh, there's a lot of great wine out there, but I think it's standardized. It was easier back then to get, um, let's just say, nuanced and individual wines. Um, We all got older I was working with young winemakers. And you get older, you you um, evolve and you make wine maybe a little differently than you did before. How so? In many ways, the wines are better today than they were back then. They're more stable. But they're slightly more standardized.
0: But I mean, as you get older and you make different wines, what what is that?
1: That's what I'm saying. The years have passed. And as a wine is introduced in 1979 or 1980 or 1982... Um, in a more natural kind of way, we all realize that if we don't have a certain amount of technology, um, combined with traditional viticulture, we can make better wine by doing that. We can protect what's in the vineyard, but what I found, and I'm not going to talk about all growers, but let's just say I had four barrels of Côte Roti, and I brought it to America and I put it on the table and it was tasted reviewed, et cetera. And, um, People went crazy over it. Well, the world was following some of our work at that point. I remember when I had articles written about me as an expatriate American importer that was doing the most innovative and creative stuff. You know, you're sort of taken back by all that when you read it. But, uh, you know, I was getting calls from Japan and from foreign countries, from Canada. Could I sell them wine? Because my name on the bottle of wine had a certain credibility. I was proud of that. But at the same time, the growers were getting the echo and knew what was going on because their demand began to grow. So that four barrels of wine became eight barrels of wine became 15 barrels of wine because they would buy the vineyard next door or the vineyard down the street or this, that, and the other. And just remember the source of the original fruit in 1979 was one little parcel that produced four or five barrels, which became a dozen barrels. And to hold that back as much as we needed it to survive. And I'm telling you, it was very modest surroundings, it was very hard to not be penalized by that from the, sen- from the sense of the raw material. Uh, I sort of dress, eat, and drink the way I did in 1979, although I can go to a, a few better places because of the success I've had as a wine importer. But that's not what really drove me. I wanted to have raw material. I'm pretty much the same. And when I stick my nose in a glass of wine of a grower that I worked with 20 years ago, sometimes I'm really, really pleased with the evolution. And sometimes I'm less pleased because of the evolution. And that's what's happened with uh, increased demand, increased popularity. There are many markets of export today. In 1979, the growers I worked with, they exported to neighboring countries, maybe to Germany, definitely to Belgium. The English uh, always loved French wine, but Asia was not part of the wine market then. And... Every country now, if they want white Burgundy, they have to go to Merceau, Puligny, or Chassagne. And those three little villages have to furnish wine for the whole world today, where it wasn't the whole world back then.
0: Why the choice never to do your own winery? It seems like you're an importer who has always been very much involved in the process of making wine, as opposed to just the process of selecting it and shipping it and then marketing it. Why never the Bobby Catcher Vineyard?
1: Well, it got close a few times. Uh could have worked. Personal matters came into play, and it, it didn't actually come to pass. But I was very close to Philippe Laurent. Uh, when he sold wine in bulk, he had a domain called Graminon, And uh, I discovered it when he was selling in bulk to the Negociant. And we talked and talked. And he invested in a vineyard in Van Sobra and all that other stuff. And we were working on it because the wines were sold for a couple of francs a liter at that time. And because of uh, his recognition, press, et cetera became very popular. And we were looking at a house in a small town together called Rousseau Le which had a big backyard. And that backyard could have been another in- installation for a shea for vinification. And uh, a couple of months later, he died. That was heartbreaking. And, uh, you know, you can only do the, that kind of thing with certain people that, you know, you really feel close to and and trust. And so there were other occasions that that occurred I always though felt if I created a winery and bought 10 hectares of vineyards and started producing wine, I'd ultimately be competing with my growers Mm -hmm. and I didn't know how they'd feel about that. And, um, well, my job was to deliver great wine to America and I, and, uh, perhaps had I not, um, perhaps if things worked out differently, I'd be in France today and that would be very different. But Alex was born. I came back to America a little bit more and, and, uh, and didn't end up going that way.
0: It seems like you've had a long engagement with Costa de Neym as a region. How did that start, and why is it that so many of your producers came from that place?
1: Well, I do have, I probably have a half dozen of today. What The value they represent sort of seems that it's more than that, but um, I was, that's when I, in the mid-80s, uh, mid I guess, until the mid-90s, I kept an apartment in Gigona, so I was in the Southern Rhone Valley a lot. And if you know the Southern Rhone Valley, you have one side of the river, which is called the Vaucluse, and the other side is called the Gardoise. And uh, if you're at Chateauneuf-du-Pape, you're on the river pretty much, and you could cross the river and be in Lirac and Tavel, and that's basically the gateway to the Costier. And the Costier is a Coturon. It's not the Languedoc. And it it sort of embraces on the edge of Tavel all the way down to the Camargue, And a lot of people misinterpreted it and thought, oh, those are Languedoc wines, but they're really Western, southern Rhone wines, just like Lyraq and those others. Uh, Their appellation didn't come to them until 1986. So they weren't 1936 like the others. So the value of the product was very low in raw material, but the yields were way too high. And as the appellation started to happen and they regulated the yield control, I sort of arrived a little bit before that. And I began to see certain sites on the Camargue that when I would taste something produced at a certain uh, level of production at 40 hectoliter per hectare, for instance, and I would see the raw material, although a little bit different than Chateauneuf, uh, I found it every bit as delicious. And um, I saw the value in it because it was considerably less expensive. So I pushed growers to work at about 35 to 45 rather than 52, which is a lot today. To really achieve good maturity on in the vineyard, the plantations are now more dense. There's a problem we have uh, when you calculate yield. you have to calculate how many plants are producing that yield because if you have ten thousand per hectare or five thousand per hectare and you produce the same yield, the five thousand plant production has twice as many bunches than the ten thousand uh, plant same size parcel. so I was into that kind of stuff. I was always doing those calculations, how are we going to make better wine? And, and we worked out, uh, there were some growers that really had the energy and they were so happy that the costière was beginning to get a little bit of recognition. And I was willing to, uh, at that time I was more well-known and my name on it meant that at least somebody would taste it. And, and I brought good raw material back to America. And at that time, particular time, it became the zone that I worked on to produce dry provencal style because this is really part of Provence, dry Provencal rosés. And we took sites that were not so good, not the best sites, and we dedicated it only to making rosé. It wasn't an afterthought, and we bought the refrigeration we needed to make it, and that's why I have half a dozen great rosés from that zone, that area, that, that uh, Appalachian, that are quite bright and quite fresh. And other importers followed me, like they did in De Gasconia, Because I worked with the Grasso family for over 30 years, a Domaine de Puy, because um, it's an inexpensive Gasconia wine, but it's remarkable. And uh, five years later, after all the press for $7 or $8 a bottle on this wine, most of the importers ended up with a Cote de Gasconia, which is flattering, I guess.
0: How have you seen generational change occur with the producers you've represented? Has it helped things? Has it hindered things? Have there been moments that you didn't expect as the states were handed off from one generation
1: to the next? All of those things. Um, sometimes it's uh, positive. Sometimes it's less positive. It's the way life is. And you, you live through that because you want to work with growers rather than corporations. And when you work for fam- with family-owned vineyards, farms, whatever you want to call them, they get divided. Uh, there's divorce. There's a generation that enjoys the profits of dad's hard work but doesn't really want to do the hard work. Uh, so I think you have a little bit of everything, and sometimes it's an improvement, and sometimes I'm just happy enough to see it continue at that level. I'd be satisfied with that.
0: Speaking of that, with John May, we just saw a change where the brothers are now splitting up. Mm -hmm. Is that, in a way, kind of the inevitable when you have an estate for so long from 79 that eventually things move apart?
1: No, I don't think it's inevitable. It happens. And that's too bad. I mean, uh, what's nice is is they both have the equivalent vineyards. So one didn't lose Mouton or Champon or something like that. So the vineyards were divided the way they were divided, but everyone kept a bit of each one. So they'll they'll continue. Uh, the estate itself is Jean-Paul, and he has a domain with his wife and uh, Corinne. And... Um, there'll be just a little bit less wine and that's the way it is. And hopefully Jean-Luc will, you know, create his own venue and, and, and develop what he wants to develop. And I, we're helping as much as we can.
0: Have you found your own palette to change over the years?
1: Uh, yeah, I find, uh, I do. I, 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 it changes in the sense that I guess when I was younger, I wanted to produce more powerful wines I guess at that time I was more powerful. And uh, I think probably from an extraction basis, it's a little bit finer. Um, As we, It takes a generation to, to turn around a vineyard to get it to do what you want it to do after the vineyards were so badly treated in the 40s and 50s and 60s with fertilizers and a lot of sprays and a lot of poisons and stuff like that. And in the 70s, that started to change. And greatly, when we started to get involved in the 80s, uh, things became quite natural. And uh, when you take vineyards that had to be replanted after World War II, if you really think about it, uh, now they're, if they were replanted, now they're in the 60-year range. So you have older vines uh, um, in a more natural state. The yields have been low for a while, and so they're in harmony with themselves. And so what you're able to do is the raw material and flavors you're getting from the vineyard, we work on that more. And in the, in the winery, we allow... Less of a heavy hand from a standpoint of winemaking. Because you got, again, two different stages in this theater. And you can take from the vineyard what you might perceive as great material and make it the way you want to make it. And the result can be different from winemaker to winemaker. So I I tend to think we're letting the concentration and the power of the wines um, be done only in the vineyard and less in the winery.
0: Why not the call to other countries? Why stay with France?
1: Well, I I do play around in Portugal in the Ribatejo with Paulo Saturnino Cunha, so he's a great friend of mine, and uh, we buy some of his wines. And I I have gone to Argentina to uh, on the recommendation of uh, and study of Michel Rolland going to the cooler climates in the Uco Uco Valley near Tupungato and all that stuff, you know, at a high elevation because I was interested. And I've I've done a few bottlings from there. Part of my problem uh, with going to a lot of different countries was following fashion because there was a demand for Australian wine. I can have a hard time drinking some of them, you know. They're high alcohol wines with not a lot of finesse and, and, uh, and they're very ponderous and it's not my taste. So even though some of my colleagues went to Australia, uh, bought a lot of wine. I didn't, didn't, uh, interest me. And at the other, on the other side was I was 80 with 80 winemakers or so in France. And I was doing all these bottlings, individual cuves There was absolutely no time to, I didn't have an, you know, as years years wear on, it's very hard to keep track of doing all the work I was doing. So to go to other places, uh, to build a business, never had this thought of building a big business. I wanted to Have authentic wine. And that was what I was about. And I feel that way today. So,
0: What would you say to the next generation of wine importer that were maybe coming up in the next few years as
1: advice? I would uh, wish them well. And um, always keep your nose in the glass. Buy based on that. Um, Believe in yourself. And um, be open-minded. And these young wine importers that come up today will represent the relatives that we represent right now. In fact, we own nothing. We hand it off. That's, that's what our life is about. We hand off the work that we do. And, uh, and that's sort of cool. I never felt I owned Jamais' uh, representation. It's a handshake. And uh, I've represented a lot of the growers we talked about today. I do not represent anymore. Dice, Boyou, Serafin, these are guys that went their own way for a variety of reasons. But um, they're beautiful people and they're people that touched me and marked me in my life. And, uh, and I think that as time goes by, it'll be very interesting for me to see what the world of wine becomes.
0: Bobby Catcher, he's had an engagement with how the world has become for wine. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Bobby Catcher of Robert Catcher Wine Selections. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton.